And every once in a while, I'll slow down and just throw in a comment. So start, starting in Hebrews 1, verse 1. Long ago, and many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. It's basically a reference to the Old Testament. But in these last days, he has now spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. And he, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of God's nature. And he, Jesus, upholds the universe by the word of his power. And after he had made purification for sins on the cross, rose from the dead, he ascended into heaven, and he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And here's the first really challenging statement. Having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Now, I don't know if you see it, but what that statement implies is that there was a time in the story when Jesus was not greater than angels, that he became greater than angels. And in case you're wondering, is this guy about to deny the doctrine of the Trinity? Not about to deny the doctrine of Trinity, but Hebrews 1 very clearly says that Jesus became greater than angels. How does that logic work? The rest of this section, chapter one and two, walks us through. Here, and now the writer just quotes a ton of Old Testament verses in the rest of the chapter, and he goes back and forth between Old Testament verses about angels and Old Testament verses about God's royal son, Jesus. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you? Psalm two about the Messiah. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. At 2 Samuel, when God makes that promise to David, that you'll have a royal son who will rule over the world on my behalf. And again, when God brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. So it implies that the son is greater than the angels. The angels worship the son, not vice versa. And of the angels, he says, he makes his angels, which is just a Greek word that means messenger, someone who's sent, wins, and his ministers, that's another word for angels, a flame of fire. But of the sun, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And here's another one. You, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain, and they will wear out like a, they will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will have no end. And finally, to which of the angels did God ever say? And the answer is always nobody. No angel did God ever say this of. Only Jesus, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Now, if you're willing to write in your Bible, which is always a practice I'm, I'm a big fan of, I think the last verse of Hebrews 1 is the best one-verse summary of angels in the entire Bible. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? That's the best one-line summary of angels in the entire Bible. That's who they are. That's what they do. They are sent out by God to serve you who are to inherit salvation. Notice there that inherit salvation is clearly referring to something that's still to come in the future. You, you are already someone who's the son and a daughter who belongs to God, but there's a salvation coming, the promised land in the future that you're to inherit, and angels are sent by God to minister to you, to serve you, to put it in the context of our wilderness theme. Here's how I'm going to restate this. Angels are there to help you get to the promised land. 
That's the role of angels in this story. They're there to serve your journey on the way to the promised land so that you don't fall away and stop trusting in God, to strengthen you, to encourage you, to guide you, to mediate God's grace to you. Therefore, chapter two, verse one, we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard in the gospel, lest we drift away from it. For since the message of old, this is referring to the Mosaic law, which was declared by angels. That's a really interesting thing that the New Testament often says, that God gave the law to Moses through angels. And since that, angel, that message, which was declared by angels, proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience committed against the Mosaic law received a just retribution, how will we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It, salvation, the gospel, was declared at first by the Lord Jesus, and then it was attested to us by those who heard, eyewitnesses, while God also bore witnesses by signs and wonders in various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Here's another verse that you have to really think about, verse 5, because it is not to angels that God has subjected the world to come. I'm going to encourage you to go back to that verse after this sermon and think about it very, very clearly. That verse is implying two things. One, that the world to come is subjected to human beings, not the angels, but that the world right now is not subjected to human beings, but that God is entrusted in some real way to angels rather than human beings. And that, to put it this way, go all the way back to the beginning, that if you are a human being who is a follower of Jesus, you have a destiny of becoming greater than the angels. You are not greater than the angels right now. The world right now, angels have more authority in the universe than you do right now, but the world to come will not be subjected to the angels. It will be ruled by God's people. Something's gonna change in the story. How do we know that? And he pulls out Psalm 8, this poetic meditation on creation. Verse six, it has been testified somewhere, and this is Psalm 8, what is a human being? You are mindful of him, mindful of her, or the son or the daughter of a human being, that you care for them, you made human beings a little while lower than the angels. That's where the writer's getting it. Human beings were made lower than the angels for a little while, but that state of affairs is not going to last. For a little while, God made humans lower than the angels, but at some point, humans will no longer be lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor, and you have intended to put everything in subjection under humanity's feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to humanity, God left nothing outside of humanity's control. At present, however, we do not yet see everything in subjection to human beings. The world is broken. The world is not how God intends it, as it will one day again be in the world to come. But we have this consolation. We see him, Jesus, who for a little while was made lower than the angels. So when the writer says Jesus became greater than angels, he's not saying that God, Jesus was eternally lower than the angels and then somehow became, he's saying he was eternally the son of God. But when he became a human being at Christmas 2000 years ago, he condescended to a place, not just lower than God, but lower than the angels. But the end game of Jesus's story is that he became greater than the angels. And that's your end game too as a human being, as a Christian. And so we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus. And he's crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death 
so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, God, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons and daughters to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who sanctify are are sanctified, all have one source. And that is why Jesus is not ashamed to call us his brothers and sisters, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children that God has given me. And here's how the writer wraps it up. Since therefore, conclusion, the children, that's us, share in flesh and blood, he himself, the eternal son of God, likewise participated in the same things, flesh and blood the incarnation became a human being why so that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death that is the devil last week we saw in first john 3 one verse first john 3 verse 8 the reason the son of god appeared was to destroy the works of the devil here's hebrews 2 saying exactly the same thing jesus in order to come to our aid took on the same flesh and blood we wear in order to die, and in order to destroy the one, verse seven, uh, verse 14, who has the power of death, that is the devil, and to deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Last week, and I know I'm commenting on this more than usual, this really is part of the sermon, I promise. Last week, I argued that you don't really get any clear background on Satan in scripture. You never really read about um, where he came from or how he fell, all of that. There's a lot of speculation there. If you notice verse 16 here, it starts with the word for right after it mentions Satan in verse 14 and 15. I actually think that this is one of the clearest places in scripture, although you have to read between the lines, where Satan is clearly put in the category of an angel. Notice, Satan has authority over us. We're subjected to him through lifelong slavery by fear of death, and Jesus came, took on a human existence to free us from that, and then verse 16 says, because surely it is not angels that he helps but he helps the offspring of Abraham. That clearly assumes that Satan in his sin, Jesus did not become an angel to help Satan when he had sinned, but he does come to the help of human beings when they have sinned. That is another incredible line about the role of angels in scripture. They're amazing. They're creatures of glory, but they are not valued by God as much as you are as human beings, that Jesus has done things for human beings that he has never and will never do for an angel, namely take on a human body and suffer and die so that we might be delivered from destruction. He verse, let me just read that again in verse 16. Surely it is not angels that he helps, but he does help the offspring of Abraham. That is an incredible statement about the significance we have to God, not because of our worth, but because of God's love. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers and sisters in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. And because Jesus himself has suffered when tempted, he's now able to help us when we are being tempted. That is an amazing two chapters, and I hope you'll go back and you'll read them in the future and think about them, but I think the storyline of angels is laid out pretty well there in Hebrews 1 and 2. So let me pray, even though I'm already a quarter of the way through my sermon, and, uh, and we'll jump in. Father, thank you that angels are sent 
to minister to us, to serve us as we continue the journey through the promised land. Thank you that they are there to be a means of your grace to us. Thank you that they are not as significant as Jesus and that even our own destiny is ultimately to come into an authority in the universe under you, Father, that transcends the authority angels currently have. And yet to also know that we are for a little while made lower than them um, and that they are also meant to be a means and a conduit of your grace. And so I pray that you give us insight. And I also pray that this would just be very practical and relevant and helpful as well as I hope true, as we think about this aspect of your kingdom, this aspect of your grace, this aspect of the world that you've created and that you love. And so we ask all of that in Jesus's name. Amen. All right. So in terms of grace in the wilderness, just some real quick review that we haven't done in a while. Throughout this whole series, which will go through the end of the summer, I've been arguing over and over and over again, it's probably been a month since I've mentioned this, that there's three main ideas I want you to have when we think about, I don't know why I held four fingers there, sorry, I'm not, I'm not very intelligent. There's three, three main, not four, four main things that I want us to think about when it comes to the wilderness. The first, and this is this, this will probably be the last sermon today where I'm doing this, where I alternate between grace and danger, grace and danger. We're going to move in a slightly different direction starting next week, but that, that the wilderness in scripture is mixed. It's not all good. It's not all bad. It's a place where demons roam, but also angels minister to his people. It's a place where your daily needs are met, but also a place of temptation. It's a place that is mixed Two, that the wilderness is a picture, not of a hard part of the Christian life, not of a particularly difficult season you go through, but it's the entire Christian life. If you are a Christian, you are decisively no longer a slave to sin and death. You have already been liberated. The exodus has already happened for you. You are no longer in Egypt. But if you are a Christian, you are period, no nuance at all. You are not in the promised land yet. So where are you? You're in the wilderness journeying for 40 years, looking back saying, thank God that we were no longer slaves, but also saying, I can't wait to get to my home. And you need to know that's where you are. In that sense, to use a, a word that Christians have often used historically in a more formal way, the wilderness is typical. That is, whenever we read any story about the wilderness in scripture, we don't look at it and say, oh, that's interesting that that happened a long time ago in history, but we actually expect to see patterns there of our own life, patterns of how God works, patterns of the kinds of dangers and the kinds of grace that is available to us in the wilderness. The wilderness is not just a history lesson. It's typical of the Christian life. And then number three, finally, that the wilderness is a lens to look through at the rest of the Christian life. So much of the Christian life comes into focus, even baptism in the sacraments. I've mentioned this a lot in the series. Baptism is based on that God saves his people by taking them through water. The sacraments are, the Lord's Supper is based on manna every day falls down from heaven and water comes out of the rock. And so even when Jesus taught us to pray, give us this day our daily bread, he's clearly referring to the wilderness and to manna. Very interesting for our topic today. Psalm 78 calls the manna, the bread of angels. It's the bread of angels. That somehow the way it was delivered was not just straight from the hand of God to the people, but it was delivered via angels. It was the bread of angels, and that's another little insight into how scripture thinks about angels. With all of that said, let me just acknowledge, angels are super weird. 
Angels are super weird to me. When I became a Christian, I did not grow up in a religious household. And I am also not, a lot of you know about me, I am not like, I, I would say like a typically religious person. The existence of God has never been obvious to me. I don't have, I've never had an experience of an angel. I've never seen an angel. And I, I look back on it with humor now. One of the really disorienting things for me when I became a Christian in the Bible Belt in North Carolina, my freshman year in college, is beginning to be exposed to Christians who are really fascinated by angels and talk about angels a lot. And that has always struck me as just a weird kind of person, somebody who's really into angels, somebody who's always telling you about angels they've seen and angels who've done things in their lives. And I remember really thinking like, okay, there are some weird Christians out there. Um, and I still, when I run into somebody like that, I, my, my default instinct is to be like, there's, there's something a little off there um, in this person. And to be honest, I think that is often the case. I, I don't think every Christian that talks about angels is telling you the truth or is being clear about what happened. But nonetheless, I've also been challenged over the years that the, the worldview bequeathed to me and to all of us in our culture is far more reduced than it should be. I often think whenever I read about angels in scripture or just Christians who've always, and Jews who've always talked about angels over the millennia, is this famous scene in Hamlet, where Hamlet has had his initial experience with his dad's ghost, and Horatio's like, you sure you didn't drink a little too much last night, Hamlet? And Horatio says, oh, day and night, but this is wondrously strange. And Hamlet famously, famously responds with, and therefore, as a stranger, give it welcome, because there are more things in heaven and earth, Horatio, than are dreamt of in your philosophy. And to be open to, there is more there than our eyes see. Um, nonetheless, one of the things I want to do today, and last week when we talked about Satan, I argued there's, there's two extremes we can fall off on when it comes to supernatural aspects of the Christian faith, whether Satan, whether angels. C.S. Lewis talks about this at the beginning of Screw Tape Letters, that you can fall into superstition or skepticism. The, the Christians I was just telling you about, they kind of fall into superstition. They begin to emphasize things in a way different than the way scripture emphasizes it. They begin to like come up with a lot of things that are not clearly there in scripture. They begin to take things that are on the periphery and to put them in the center and to take things that are in the center and to put them on the periphery. And that's superstition. But probably for most of us, the bigger danger is skepticism. Just be like, oh, awkward onto the next Psalm that doesn't talk about angels and to just kind of keep it at bay. And so one of my main goals today, and, and hopefully always when I preach is I want this to not just be true, but I want you to have a sense of why this matters of the difference that this makes. And, and I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but I can say for me as a preacher, as a pastor, one of the great challenges of being a pastor is to back up and say, am I just saying this because I think I'm supposed to say it? Or am I saying something that actually reflects not just my own convictions, but also like my own experience? It's very easy for me to be inauthentic up here and say things that are there in scripture and true. But when I look back, I'm like, but is this actually the way I experienced the Christian life? Is this actually like make any difference to me? But now I'm telling them it should make a difference to them, but it doesn't make any difference to me. And so I actually want to give you, and I'll start with this and end with this. I want to give you the biggest difference that angels make for me personally, as somebody who finds it difficult to believe in anything I don't see and smell, as somebody who's never seen one or experienced one, which is this. And, and some of you have known me long enough to know this. One of my primary flaws, one of my primary sins, one of the great dangers in my life spiritually is how prone I am to despair. I do not remember a season in my life where I didn't feel negative emotions 
more profoundly and more frequently than positive emotion by far, to the point that, and it's gotten better over the years by God's grace, to the point that the pastor who did premarital counseling for Helen and I, and has known me for a long time, and so that's good, actually said, Helen, my main warning to you about this man is that he is very prone to be overwhelmed by his negative experience of the world, and it's intense. And sometimes you're going to need to say, Nick, I just can't deal with this right now. Go be depressed over there. And, and that was a really great thing for him to tell her because I am a lot sometimes. And Helen knows that. Um, and so I regularly find that life, uh, whether it's looking at politics and culture and society, whether it's looking at my own experience, whether it's just my own intuitions, I look at the world and joy and optimism and hope and confidence are not at all my natural intuitions. Just I regularly am overwhelmed. I regularly think five years from now, I can't even imagine how much worse it's going to be. I can't even imagine why it's worth getting out of bed today. That is my great struggle in life more than any other. And I'm not honestly saying that because, oh, look how like angsty and cool he is. Like, I can't wait till the day that God takes this away from me. Like, I cannot wait until there's never another experience of depression. I can't wait until there's no more doubt, no more despair. I often quote it, I'll, I'll quote it a little later today again, but honestly, the main reason I love the Lord of the Rings is not because there's like elves and dragons and dwarves. It's because the whole story is a story about learning to hope in the face of despair. That's what the whole story is about. Every single character, their central quest, central task is whether they're gonna despair or whether they're gonna find a reason to keep going. And it always resonates with me because of that. And so just to say this, my default starting point as a human being is I wake up and I tend to think reality sucks. Why should I get out of bed? And so I need reasons to be optimistic. I need reasons to think that there, there's reason to not just exist and survive, but actually thrive and flourish and cultivate. And one of the main roles angels play in scripture is to remind us not only, although this is true, that much, 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 much more is going on behind the scenes than we think, but that most of it is good that most of it is implementing God's will, that most of it is bringing about states of affairs that are restoring and healing what is broken right now. Angels are there to remind us that we are not to take the current experience of the world and make it the measure of reality, that God is at work behind the scenes. And so I think that angels are ultimately really, really practical in the Christian life. And I would love to give you some reasons for that. So let's do a quick survey. And then I'm just going to give you a couple of things that I think are there practically with angels. Angels don't show up. I don't want to oversell this today. Angels are not central to the Christian faith. They are important, but they're not a central foundational belief or a conviction, they show up in a little more than half of the books of the Bible. Then they show up in something like 34 or 35 books of the Bible. There's 66 books of the Bible. So they're there, but they're not there everywhere. And they're not there all the time. And they tend to overwhelmingly appear in two kinds of places. One in narratives, long narratives. Think of Abraham in Genesis 19 with the angel of the Lord. Balaam, in Numbers 22 with the angel of the Lord and the donkey. That's a wilderness story if you haven't read it or haven't read it recently. In the book of Judges, remember the book of Acts, like angels are like launching jailbreaks to get Christians out of jail. Like it's crazy stuff. Angels show up in narratives that are kind of slow and sustained to kind of show how God interacts with people. But even more than that, this second place is the main place they show up. Angels tend to appear in literature that the genre is called apocalyptic. Revelation. Zechariah, 
the second half of the book of Daniel. Angels tend to show up in books. By the way, apocalyptic is a literally just a transliterated Greek word, and it doesn't mean the end of the world, like we tend to use it today in English. Apocalyptic is the Greek word for to reveal or to unveil.
around through the labor of angels, men, always imperfectly obedient and efficient, and the activity even of irrational and inanimate beings, ends which presumably the mere fiat declaration of omnipotence would achieve with instantaneous creation seems to be delegation through and through. If you understand that about the Christian faith, a lot of things will fall into place that you will otherwise struggle with. He will do nothing simply of himself, which can be done by creatures. And I suppose this is because he is a giver and he has nothing to give but himself. And to give himself is to do his deeds sense and on varying levels to be himself through the things that he has made in pantheism that's not christianity god is everything but the whole point of creation surely is that god was not content to be everything he intends to be everything to everyone all in all but not everything and so the idea here is that god is always working indirectly through agents that he's created and entrusting them with real responsibility and just as if you ever ask What's the point of angels? Like, why do we even need them? Let's, let's do the Occam's razor thing. Let's just keep it simpler. If you object to God creating angels to work through them because God doesn't need angels, the problem with that is he didn't need you either. And so why are we here? Why are we here? Any objection we would raise against angels, C.S. Lewis is immediately an objection raised against God creating anything at all and working through anything at all. Read that, next, that, that other quote on your own later on. Um, two things real quick about that. It's connected to angels just overall. One of the things that almost every Christian at some point, certainly every human being brings up is, if God exists, why doesn't he show up and solve problems in the world or in my life more directly? And that often you call it the problem of evil, problem of suffering. Almost always there is an assumption there that God usually always works directly in the world, but he almost never does according to scripture. And scripture says, even in the world to come, he will mostly work through us. It will be subjected to us. But right now, he works through angels as his mediators. Turn to Revelation chapter 8. I know we're kind of jumping all over the place. I'm just trying to give you a little taste here and there. I did a short series on prayer sometime close to a year ago, I would guess. And I mentioned this passage. It's only a couple of verses. And I'm going to encourage you to really grab onto it. Not just for angels, but also for prayer. And, and by the way, this will be where where I end um, in just a minute, which is if you take angels seriously, one of the most practical payoffs is you would start praying more. Not praying to angels, but you would start praying more. The, one of the reasons almost all of you are far more prayerless than you should be is that you think you're wasting your time when you do it. You think there are more efficient uses of your time, the exercise of your agency. But if you take angels seriously, all of a sudden prayer and getting things done actually comes together more naturally in your thinking. And so Revelation 8 says this, the very beginning of the chapter, when the lamb opened the seventh seal, this is the climactic moment where God's kingdom comes, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Again, this is metaphorical. It's an apocalyptic unveiling of what's going on behind the scenes. And then I saw the seven angels who stand before God and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at that altar with a golden censer or bowl and he was given much incense in this bowl to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne so let's recap what's going on here there's an angel and he's got a big bowl and it is filled with the prayers of god's people got this bowl 
filled with the prayers of all God's people, on the golden altar before the throne, and the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God. So our prayers go up. They're pleasing to God like incense from the hand of the angel. And then, such a crucial moment, then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and threw it down upon the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, earthquakes, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Prayers go up. The world changes, but notice what happens in between. Angels are the ones who implement the things that we have prayed for. Prayer changes things, but angels are the ones who put it into practice on the earth. So I do not think that you should pray to angels directly. That is very clearly out of bounds in scripture. But one of the reasons we should pray is that we know that there are angels in God's army who will be sent in response to what we ask for to implement God's will in the world. One of the many reasons I am prone to despair as a human being, even as a Christian, is that for whatever reason, I've just kind of always been aware of, and, and I think this is true, that against much of what our culture says, I've always been aware that most of what has happened in reality and history, past, present, future, is absolutely outside of the influence of my agency. That no matter how much you care about social justice, no matter how much you try to make the world a better place, 99.99999% past, present, and future, you cannot do anything about. And you are wasting your time if you think you can change it. And that's true. We regularly overestimate our agency as human beings, individual human beings, societies of human beings. On the other hand, one of the reasons we are so prayerless is because we profoundly underestimate the role of angels and human beings working together when we pray to our creator to bring about change in the world. Second Kings 6, you don't need to look there, but this is where Elisha, the guy after Elijah, is sleeping and his servant boy wakes him up in the morning in panic and says, Elisha, Elisha, get up. We are surrounded by an army that has come to destroy us. And Elisha has the strangest response to this moment. It's actually an apocalyptic moment. And he says, woke me up for this, going back to bed. And, and the kid's like, Elisha, why aren't you as freaked out and panicking like I am? And Elisha says, Lord, would you open his eyes so that he can see that those who are with us are more than those who are against us? And he sees an army of heavenly angels. And he all of a sudden sees more is going on behind the scenes than I am aware of. I am not saying that we should regularly expect to see angels. It's not the role. They rarely make themselves known to human beings directly. What I'm saying is that what God is doing behind the scenes, including with angels, is a great argument against despair, a great argument for prayer, a great argument for encouragement. Don't underestimate what God is doing behind the scenes. Let's end with this, Psalm 34. And then I'll pray. We'll do the Lord's table together. And again, yep, I'm sure that this raises a lot of questions for at least some of you this Wednesday night, 7.30. Jump on a Zoom call with us. It'll just be a Q&A about angels. Psalm 34 is, I, I wasn't planning on doing this. So you probably can't see, but I have a tattoo here on my right ankle. I got it when I was 19 years old, right down the street, actually, in this neighborhood in the West Village. Um, I was here in New York City, and I've been a Christian for about a year, and on my ankle on the cross is Psalm 34, verse 6. So I got tattooed. I'm 43 years old today. That was more than half of a lifetime ago for me. 19 years old, right down here in the West Village. And Psalm 34, verse 6 says, I sought the Lord. And sorry, this is the verse right before it. I sought the Lord, and he answered me, and he delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant. Their faces shall never be ashamed. And here's the verse I have on my ankle. This poor man cried out, and the Lord heard him 
and saved him out of his all his troubles. Notice those three verses just all say, we are in great need and God comes to our rescue when we cry out. Notice the next verse. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Angels are connected to answered prayer constantly in scripture. If you have ever, as a Christian, experienced an answered prayer, almost certainly angels were involved in implementing it. Almost certainly angels were involved in implementing it. And so I am not saying, let's start like having visions of angels and talk. I'm not saying, I'm just saying, let's be aware that even a basic category like agency, how the world works and how it's changing, that God has so much grace there beyond what we realize. And again, at the very beginning of Jesus's story, he is being tempted in the wilderness and there's not just a devil there tempting him. There are also angels ministering to him. And in the final moments before he goes to the cross and he is more than ever tempted to despair and say, Father, take away this cup. I don't want to do it. One, he says, could I not call upon 12 legions of angels and they would get me out of this? And the implication is, yes, he could, but it's not the angels that he helps. He helps us. That's not why he came. But then as he decides to go forward and he's sweating drops that are so intense that they're like drops of blood. And we're told and an angel appeared strengthening him. Um, that there is more grace than we understand in our lives. And so I would say just practically two things, although angels are connected to many things. If you are tempted to despair in any way, bring this into your purview, bring this in your purview that do not measure reality now or in the future by what you're reading on the New York Times or Fox News or CNN. Do not measure reality. If your emotional response is entirely a response to what's going on externally in our culture, you are not taking into account most of reality. And that is a mistake. And two, I would say, if you do not pray, one, you probably don't pray because whether you admit or not, you think you're wasting your time and doing all the other stuff in your life is how you really get stuff done. But I would say, two, you are actually being very unstrategic in how you use your time. Angels are so connected to how God works in the world. And yet, as the book of Hebrews says, are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve those who are to inherit salvation? Ask God to work and know that God has great power to work in many ways, including through angels. They are a means of grace. So let's pray and we'll take the Lord's table together. Father, thank you that you are a God 